Welcome to the Garrett. I'm Josh Chips. The Garrett. 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 A podcast by writers for writers about writing. Here's your host, Astrid Edwards. Welcome to the Garrett Josh Kemp. I stayed up very late last night and I have just finished reading your debut novel, Banjoan. Now, did I say that correctly? That's how I, I say it, but uh, since the novel's come out, I've heard like 15 different pronunciations. I, I tend to say Banjoan. Well, congratulations. <laughs> this is this is haunting. Now, you have already written many short stories before, but this this is your first debut novel. This is about 450 pages of I'm not quite sure what. You really surprised me. Every single page was a surprise. And to be really honest, that doesn't always happen. So congratulations, Josh. How do you feel to have it out in the world? Uh, it's still so surreal, to be honest. Like Even uh, at the Dorothy Hewitt Award announcement last year, I was sort of still levitating a metre off the air, not, not entirely sure what was going on. I guess now in the past month, what's been so great is getting the feedback I just love hearing from readers like yourself and, and talking about the unpredictability is especially makes me especially happy. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess that's sort of the space I'm in now is just getting the, the reader response and I'm just really enjoying that at the moment. Now, we do need to talk about the Dorothy Hewitt Award. Last year in 2021, you were the inaugural recipient of the Dorothy Hewitt Award, which is for an unpublished manuscript. This, of course, is an award from UWA Publishing and you are based in Western Australia. For complete transparency, I have to admit that I am the external judge for the 2022 Dorothy oh, right. Hewitt Award. Oh, and it is an incredibly pleasurable judging experience uh, <laughs> and basically everybody is looking to find a work as utterly overwhelming as Banjoan. So let's get into it, Josh. What is the origin story of this novel? Where on earth did you find the story? <laughs> well, I suppose it's quite a long story. I came up with the character of Hoyle a few years ago, back in 2016, and I was at the time planning on writing a crime novel something a bit more traditional like The Dry or The Broken Shore. But I didn't want the detective or the hero to be the sort of archetype Australian crime detective who, as much as I love those novels, you know, the detective is quite often a useless father, a useless husband, but he's a great detective, you know. And I just, for some reason, I had this idea of like, well, what if you had someone who was pretty useless at everything? Um, <laughs> and then I think the the drug use element came in, which really just sort of elevated it to a new level, uh, a new sort of fascinating level. So I had this character, but I, I couldn't make that novel happen. For some reason, it just wasn't coming together. And now I look back at Banjoan, I think possibly it was because I hadn't found Luna yet. The novel is two voices, right? It's Hoyle and then Luna. And I think the original idea was just Hoyle. And it just, for some reason, wasn't gelling. I mean, this novel really came from my love of breakaway country. And having read the book, you probably understand why I might be so fascinated with it. I'm a big bushwalker. And uh, I, back in 2020, I was looking for a new place to go hiking to sort of explore. And I read about this place called the Terraces, which features quite prominently in the novel. And whenever I visit an area, I like to read about frontier history before I go out there because, number one, I'm really interested in it. But number two, I think it explains so much about why a place is like the way it is. And so I started researching like the history of the goldfields and the northern goldfields. 
I just really couldn't believe what I was finding. It was just so intense and, you know, deeply confronting at times. And then to actually go do the trip physically and you're sort of standing in these places that you've read about, these terrible things have happened. It's like an, an extra weight to these places. So the, the novel then essentially within that, I think it was about a three-week trip, I went up to Kalgoorlie, Leonora, lived out of my car for that amount of time. And uh, by the end of the trip, the book was just there. You know, it was just ready to be written. So where did Luna come from? And no spoilers, but for those listening, Hoyle is a man who does use drugs and Luna is a younger girl. She's not an adult and yet her voice is so strong and she does kind of take up the other half of the novel. And without putting too fine a point on it, you are not a young girl. So where did her (laughs) voice come from? She actually came from a failed novel many, many years ago. And that novel was dealing with very similar themes. It's about drug use and um, sort of the underbelly of, actually it was set in the East Kimberley. And there was a scene where a character broke into a house and it turned out to be a drug house and there was a child in the lounge room. And in that story, the child was much, much younger, maybe five or so. And it was just like a throwaway scene. It didn't even have much to do with the plot, but Years and years later, like, I kept thinking about this child and I was like, imagine what was his life like? You know, he'd be seven now or, you know, he'd be eight now, he'd be ten now. What what would have his, you know, what troubles would have he, he gone through? And then sort of once I sort of started thinking along those lines, Lona was just sort of there. In terms of writing from the perspective of a ten-year-old girl, after I finished the first draft, I think it was the day after, actually, I had a mild freak out because I was like, I sort of sat there and I was like, I've written half this novel from the perspective of a girl and I have no idea about 10-year-old girls. <laughs> so luckily the first few readers were all female and I was sort of, you know, anxiously awaiting their reactions. But I seem to have got it. The feedback I got was really positive and they sort of said I got most things right. There was a few tweaks needed here and there. But, I mean, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. That voice just came to me so strongly. And when you get a character's voice like that, it's best not to sort of waste it and just sort of go with it. It is a very convincing voice. And this is just, oh, my, exper- <laughs> this is just my experience <laughs> as a reader. But in terms of not the strength of the voice, maybe the power of the character, if that makes sense, which is obviously a very subjective thing to say, Josh, I felt like Hoyle took me through the first half. And as he was undergoing his particular experiences, Luna grew up in front of my eyes, even though only a few days passed. You know, this is not a over a long period of time, and she becomes kind of the the keeper of the story, so to speak. We've mentioned drug use quite a bit, and you've also mentioned the weight of history in the story and in these very real areas that are in Western Australia. I wanted to ask how, because you know, many writers listen to this podcast how the use of drugs and the hallucinations and the kind of new realities that that creates for some of the characters, how that butts up against history and what you can bring into the prose that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do? That's a really interesting question. I think one of the things in the novel I really wanted to explore was how personal trauma and like a greater sense of national trauma become entwined. The novel is so much about that link between personal trauma and and drug use. You know, so much of the novel is is about showing people who are in 
a very, very hard place when it comes to, you know, particularly what we're talking about is very hard drug use. I think we should, yeah. Um, there's a character called Karen. And it's not just Hoyle who's has a massive drug problem. There's two other characters as well, Karen and, and Geordie. And I wanted to show how people might end up in this place. I think there's a lot of judgment about very heavy drug users in our society. Even the term junkie to me is really interesting. It's like I work at a supermarket and it's a term that's bandied around so freely just on an everyday basis. And I've always found it so, there's just something so, yeah, judgmental about it. It's almost like you're saying the person is, obviously the term junk is referring to the substance itself. But then when you apply that term to a person, it's almost like you're saying they're beyond salvation or they're beyond help. And we just know that's that's not the case. So focusing on why people end up in this place was really important to me. But then to talk about that personal trauma and sort of juxtapose that against this huge, almost unfathomable national trauma. And although it's, it's used in like a particularly very focused on Western Australia, I think it applies to, to the country as a whole. In terms of like the drug use scenes, it sort of allowed me to talk about these things in a more, well, Hoyle is sort of searching these things out. Even though he's hallucinating, he wants these sort of tactile experiences with the memory of the land or with the history of the land. So I guess it, it allowed me to talk about these things in a more tactile way than to just say, this happened back in 1883, even though I do say that a couple of times. It was certainly a, an interesting way to write about these subjects. Look, you had me going in all different areas in the first five pages. I'm like, this reminds me of Claire Coleman's Terranelius. There are aliens. Then I'm like, well, no way, Astrid, you totally misunderstood. There are drugs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my favourite novels, by the way. So I mean, that as a very... Such a good novel. Yeah, it's such a good it's novel. such a great novel. I want to make clear for our listeners that although there is a great deal of drug use, it's not glamorised, even though the hero of the story is drug dependent and facing the stigma and the trauma and the pain that comes from that. Very real consequences. I also tried very hard not to show things like preparing. I mean, uh, injecting is quite clearly shown in the novel, but the process of preparing it stuff, I, I didn't want it to be instructional at all. No, it's, um, it's not at all. Oh, so fantastic. in addition to, you know, we've mentioned Hoyle and we've mentioned Luna, but this is also... I guess, an exploration of family, both the family that you're born into, but also the family that you choose and gather around you and the family that you leave or abandon or the family that you try to save. You also obviously are making a comment, although that seems too light a phrase to use, about the foster system in Australia and the removal of children and how it basically fails everybody involved in the system, uh, even though there are no great alternatives. And mm. you've mentioned the word trauma. There is trauma of all types with all the characters and also the national trauma and the weight of history behind everything. But even with that really quite depressing list, Josh, it's also a book about love and the ties that bind. When you sat down to tell this story, what was the story you thought you were telling? Uh, I think it was always a love story. When I started writing, figuring out where I started, how to end up in a place where it was sort of not overwhelmingly depressing. <laughs> but yeah, it was always a love story. I, 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 I love sort of odd couple 
stories, which this is certainly one of those. And it allows you to sort of go through some pretty dark places, but still end up in a place that is redemptive or to some extent or hopeful. I think, you know, some of those, some of those issues you raised, like, I think that's the great power for in particular Australian Gothic fiction, especially when our society is sort of having a reckoning with a lot of these issues. Um, you know, a, a big one being family violence, violence against women, uh, obviously Grace Thames last year's Australian year and, and Rosie Batty a number of years before that. So we're sort of having this, yeah, a reckoning with these, these things now. And this form of fiction, I think, allows us to engage with these issues in a safe space. And, and you know, these issues aren't always, you know, heavy drug use, for example, it's not always something you could, you'd feel very comfortable discussing with friends and family around the, the, the dinner table, right? So a novel allows you to sort of step into these things and, and engage with them and hopefully really get a good understanding of them without you ever being sort of any, in any sort of any danger. I think a novel released last year was The Silent Listener by Lynn Yearwatt, which dealt with family violence. And that's, that's an incredibly difficult novel to read at times. And yet, you know, you, you, you're in a safe space. You're still sort of able to engage with the issue in a safe way. But yeah, the story was always was always going to be a love story. And it's also sort of a love letter to that area, which I love so much. It's a love letter to the landscapes. Yeah, it's sort of got that sort of jewel. It's sort of like a jewel love story. So you just described this as Australian Gothic fiction. Mm. Can you articulate, like, what does the Gothic bring to fiction that readers might not be expecting? Uh, I mean, it's it's sort of always been throughout Australian literature ever since colonial writing. But I think it's really starting to gain pace, particularly in the last 10 years, like novels like Taboo by Kim Scott, which is one of my favourites. I guess it interrogates the darker side of our of the Australian experience. Most of the time it's from a non-Indigenous perspective, but there's uh, a great deal of it. Indigenous writers who are now sort of using the, the mode of fiction to um, explore stories from their perspectives, which, which is amazing. Again, I think it, it, it allows us to talk about things that we wouldn't necessarily be comfortable talking about. And our society is, it, Australia is not always great about, in particular, talking about frontier history. That's obviously a big thing that features in the novel. You know, a lot of the time it's not even in the, taught in the curriculum, which is, I think, something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I think it, it, it allows us to talk about the things we might find ourselves avoiding. And quite often those things that we avoid talking about are the things we need to talk about. We've mentioned the weight of history and it is violent uh, in the area where the novels are set, but there is also recent uh, recent history that is also really confronting. Um, and I admit I uh, have spent quite a bit of my morning Googling. So you set the novel uh, on an outback station, a real outback station called Banjoan that was actually used by the doomsday cult Shinriko, and I have probably said that incorrectly, who experimented... No, no, you've got it right. <laughs> ...who experimented with sarin gas and used to kill flocks of sheep there. I mean, I was not expecting yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, that that popped up in my research. And um, like I said, I was sort of mainly engaged with frontier history and then and that was sort of confronting enough. And then I came across this and I was like, what? <laughs> it's sort of like if it was in a film, there's just like no way you would ever believe it. You would say, oh, this is ridiculous. Um, yeah, so Om Shinriko was a, um, a doomsday sort of 
death cult, which started as a yoga group, if you can believe it. And uh, they had a pretty uh, bizarre ideology about it was a mesh of things, but there was a big belief that by essentially killing people, you were saving their soul. And uh, the organisation got interested in trying to develop chemical weapons and that they decided bizarrely this very isolated sheep station near Leonora would be the perfect place to test their chemical weapons. And so this was 1993 when they purchased the station and they actually brought some of their materials in through the Perth airport, if you, <laughs> which is just sort of unfathomable post 9-11. And, yeah, so they were out there for, I think, about a year and uh, then returned to Japan and... There were a number of terrorist attacks they were involved in, but obviously the big one is the 1995 Tokyo subway attack. And, of course, the authorities had no idea this this was happening. And then uh, after the Tokyo subway attack, there was actually a big UN investigation out at Banjuan. To this day, a lot of the areas on the station are very dangerous to go near uh, because the sarin is still present in the in the topsoil there. So it's just... Uh, it. it it was obviously such a bizarre story, but it also spoke to, again, that thing about how bad we are about talking about our own history and, and understanding our history. I felt like I had a pretty good idea about WA's history, and yet I had no idea about this. So it just, it, it just sort of fitted perfectly with the themes I was interested in. Your reader can't escape you by the time they get to that part of the novel, Josh. They will just uh, <laughs> stay up and keep reading. Now, the central character that we have mentioned so frequently, Hoyle, uh, Gareth Hoyle, he's actually a novelist. And uh, in the novel that I've just read, the central character also wrote a novel, in his case, Banjo and Sky, and it did pretty well. And the people in his life are really upset with the book that he wrote. Now, I can't help but ask. <laughs> is this a metaphor for what writers do to the people in their lives? <laughs> it, it's interesting because in the past I have based characters off real people and then, you know, you're in that writer's zone and you don't necessarily think about what you've written. I, I guess the idea in the book is you're depicting someone only from your point of view and there's just so much, so much more to people than what you're seeing and sort of that's, in a way, a lot of what the book is talking about. I mean, Hoyle himself, you know, like you say, he's, he's written this book and he's been relatively successful and people have an idea of who he is. And yet in reality, when the reader meets him and when they're spending time with him, he's just vastly different to people's perceptions of what a writer might be, you know. So, yeah, I think there's a responsibility as a writer if you're going to base characters off real people I think you need to load it with a heavy dose of, of fiction. And this is a lesson that I've learned, I hope. And in this novel, I, I was sort of decided, like determined that all these characters are just completely fiction. <laughs> I wasn't going to, I wasn't ever going to sort of make that mistake again. But uh, yeah, it's also a comment about the storyteller, right? Uh, and the power of the storyteller. And it is a responsibility. And sometimes you get it wrong. Uh, and that can have some pretty, you know, that can have real-world consequences and that can, that can really affect people's lives. This also leads into later on in, in the novel, there's a lot of discussion about who gets to tell stories, you know, in a historical context. You know, when I, when I was growing up and I learned about a little bit about the history of, of the area I lived in, it was all 
heroic white people cutting down trees to make, you know, to build their houses. There was nothing about, you know, dispossession and, and the horrors of, of colonization. So again, that I, I guess it's that, that melding, that enmeshing of the personal and the, the historical. I can only imagine that this was quite a difficult book to write. I'm not referring to subject matter. I'm referring to the technical way that you had to weave these stories together and make it make sense for the reader while still always feeling slightly beyond the reader, or at least that was my feeling. It was a very good feeling. It was an exciting feeling to have as a reader. So technically, how did you all make it hang together? I hate admitting this, especially where <laughs> I know writers will be watching this, but it was much easier than it looks. Uh, it just, um, the structure came to me so clearly, but also I'm really fascinated with structure. I love stories that, it sounds like a weird thing to say, but change as they go on, but change quite dramatically. One of the big inspirations for the novel was The Crossing by Comic McCarthy, which is Every time I think about it, I don't know how he did it, but it's a novel that starts off about something and then it becomes about something else and then it becomes about something else again and then it sort of wraps everything up in that last quarter and makes it all make sense. Yeah, I don't know how he did that. But I, I love stories like that and um, I wanted to write an, a novel like that. And although the Banjoan doesn't make those dramatic leaps that M McCarthy does, Structurally, it always felt really interesting and really complex. In all honesty, I didn't do any sort of, I didn't make any structural notes. I didn't have a, like a, a board where I think something like this you might usually, but so much of the novel developed in my mind while I was hiking. And hiking is, uh, bushwalking is sometimes like meditation. It's very, that might sound like a poncy thing to say, but it's like your, your mind is very clear. And I was just able to put the, the book together structurally in a way that by the time I got home, it was just so clear. I, I literally started, I got home at seven o'clock at night and I didn't unpack the car. I sat down and started writing because it was just so clear. I wanted to get it, get it done. That is a great story. And you are making me want to go and uh, dig through my books and find the book on writers who walk to see if I can learn anything uh, from that book. <laughs> It does help. It absolutely does help. I, I find myself quite stuck for words having listened to that explanation, Josh, because as a reader, I really didn't know where you're going to take me. So although you said you didn't do what Cormac McCarthy did, you kind of do because I wasn't sure which thread you were going to pick up and take further and use to weave into the greatest story that really brings all the threads with you. Like nothing is abandoned at the end. Everything does come together in one way, shape or form. It's just not the normal way that I am so used to reading fiction to get me there. It was a really beautiful reading experience and I really recommend everybody dive in to Banjoan. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I think it's it's the characters that hold it together. And even though there are these, these big structural sort of motions within the book. I mean, it's the people that carry you through the whole thing. And these two people were so clear and I love spending time with them so much, which the reader might think is odd considering some of the things that happen in the book. But I don't know, I guess I believed in these people. I believed they could get to a certain place. And I think that probably more than anything allowed me to sort of bring it all together in the end, because it's, it's them who, who bring it all together. So very well said, Josh. Congratulations and thank you for coming to The Garrett. 
No, thank you very much. It's fantastic. The Garrett is produced by Bad Producer Productions. Subscribe to The Garrett on all good podcast apps and read the transcripts of our interviews at thegarrettpodcast.com.